0: Hi guys, and welcome to our very first episode of The Climate Lawyer. This is one of the few podcasts about the business and law of climate change. Whether you're a lawyer, someone who works in the industry, or maybe you're just climate curious, I'm your host, Rich Kim. I'm an American lawyer at Clifford Chance, Germany, and a member of our firm's Climate M&A team. Today, we're going to look back at COP26, the UN's 26th climate conference that just ended. You've likely already heard a lot about it in the news. And um, you probably will see a lot of uh, wrap ups talking about COP26. But this episode is special, as my guests have had an up close and personal involvement with COP26. So without further ado, I'd like to turn to them. Uh, Claire and David, would you guys like to briefly introduce yourselves?
1: Certainly can, Rich. Hello. Um, So I'm Claire Burgess. I'm a partner in our Global Financial Markets practice, specialising in energy and infrastructure.
2: And I'm David, and I'm an associate in our litigation group here in London, and um, also sit on the global ESG board for the firm.
0: Awesome. Thanks, guys, and really appreciate you being here. Um, So before we get into COP26 itself, Let's go back to the to the lead up to it. Um, it's fair to say that expectations were a bit high. And um, Claire, could you uh, maybe set up where things uh, stood going into COP26?
1: Yes, it did indeed have a very strong build up. Um, of course, you know there was a lot of sort of statements around it, saying it's you know the last best hope to solve the climate crisis. A you know, huge build up, but actually. You sort of need some of that those statements to build the momentum um, leading up to the conference. Um, so you know there are a lot of high expectations, but of course the the team behind COP or the negotiating team had been working for a long time, you know, with other nations and organisations. So they would have had a very good idea of what could be achieved at the meetings themselves. Um, what I thought was interesting was, although there was a lot of discussion around COP in the build-up, a lot of people, I think, still didn't quite understand you know, what exactly COP might mean for them. Um, there's a lot of policy, but getting to the practical aspects and implications um, is sometimes quite difficult, um, particularly with the volume of, of discussions around the topic. And, and that was actually one of the reasons why we um, had a series looking at the you know, policy to practical on different topic areas and the, the goals of COP26 to try and try and bring that to life for people. Uh, I suspect people still have this this problem now um, with the outcomes of COP, trying to work out exactly what that means for them.
0: Right. And, you know, COP26 was basically where countries were going to kind of lay out uh, concrete plans for and uh, achieving the Paris climate goals and, um, you know, kind of putting further Details around their, their NDCs, the nationally determined contributions. And, you know, I mean, I, I was thinking about this before. And if we think about where the world was back when the the Paris Climate Deal was entered into ver- versus where it is now, I mean, it looks completely different, right? We've had the Fridays for Future movement, Sunrise movement, Extinction Rebellion. Um, bringing so much attention to, to this space and in the public consciousness talk, talk about, you know, a just transition and just in the private sector. I mean, it's just been an, a huge amount of activity, whether it's the corporate commitments or the letter from, um, Larry Fink, or the CEO of BlackRock to, uh, CEOs and, um, the creation of all these funds around climate change and so it's it's kind of understandable that there would be so much um anticipation going into this conference
2: yeah and and it missed a year um i think yeah one one of the things to remember is that we did also go through a pandemic in all of this so you're absolutely right you know a lot a lot happened in that in that five-year window so yeah absolutely agree with you rich it's it was when when the agreement was drafted but i think one of the things to remember and you know Going back to the nationally determined contributions, was that by the year 2020 we were actually hoping to see um, all the 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 the, mem- the 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 parties who are signatory to the Paris Agreement actually publish their their NDCs. And you know, when going into COP, there was about 80% of the global economy had had sort of put their put their NDCs forward, which is which is quite impressive. Um, and like you said, it's a very different world from when the Paris Agreement was signed.
0: Right. I think I've also aged like 50 years in this time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They don't count. They don't count. We've we've been through this. They don't count.
0: (laughs) Okay. So, so David, you were actually there in person for the entirety of COP26, which was, seemed like a real marathon. Um, Could you describe what it was like and and how can people imagine that?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, absolutely. It was a, it was, it was a great experience. It was my first COP, I I should say. Um, And, There was a lot of people. I think just to start with, you know, Glasgow is a small city in Scotland and it's got 6,000 beds, I'm told, and there were substantially more people than the 6,000 beds available to Glasgow. And so what you were seeing was as a a large number of of people descending down on on a small city. There were world leaders, renowned figures. You've got Obama, David Attenborough, uh, various companies, banks and advisors. And I'll actually come back to that one because I think that's one of the, the interesting parts of COP26 in particular. But Alongside that, you know, you, you mentioned a few of the Extinction Rebellion and others, but there were also very active protests outside, including, as you may have seen, Rich, you know, Greta and the, the a sinking ship, um, all the all the different workshops, side events, green zone and the blue zone, um, and all of this while the discussions are actually happening. And many of these discussions, um, as Claire mentioned, sort of have been happening in the background. Anyway, this is really a, a culmination of all of that, but it really brought the subject to the fore. Um, But what, you know, just to go back to all the attendees, what was really telling of this cup was the fact of that so many financial institutions were actually present. And while this may sound obvious, it's not always been the case because there has always been a question of, you know, this is a state level discussion. What does it mean practically for businesses, as Claire mentioned? Um, But there was a real enthusiasm, I felt anyway, a desire to engage, to dialogue, even to act and I do say that controversially because ultimately, as the press said, you know, COP is about state negotiations and we saw multiple groups of businesses publishing industry commitments, corporations publishing commitments and being open to take on these challenges. But there's also been equally criticism about the final language that's been used in the agreement. But, you know, as well, as you may well imagine, there's a, there was a real representation, but the attendees, I think in many ways were, to use the proverbial choir uh, that was being preached to already, you know, Pro climate individuals and so they were already there to make the change to see the difference come through and this meant that nobody really spent um, any time needing to talk about why we were all gathered at COP and why we were all having to talk about climate change. Um, this was all um, sort of a pre understood agreement really amongst those attending. And what was really expected now of COP was how we achieve this. And this meant some really creative discussions around solutions. And I would argue some really complex and sophisticated discussions on what was actually needed from from regulation, also from lawyers, but equally from the financiers.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point around everybody coming together on like how we're going to, you know, really make progress here against climate change. And, you know, I think that there's probably some there has been some criticism around the level of pomp and circumstance or <laughs> around COP26 or that. There's kind of this like PR marketing element of it too. But, you know, my thought around that is that's a good thing, right? The more attention that we can give to climate change and and the the industry and how important this is, the more that we have, these really compelling figures who are attending these, these conferences, I mean, that can only inert to our benefit at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, anyone who is making a commitment um, is taking a step forward on this agenda. And, you know, I think we do, we do have to be very careful with the sort of cancel culture ideas where, um, you know, people who are standing up and sort of T- saying okay we want to we want to be better we want to move in this direction are criticized for where they're where they're standing at that time you know I think um it's not a great way to campaign actually to start excluding people um from your club much better to say brilliant you're here by the way could you go a little bit quicker um or could you could you do this uh, could you do this as well please so you know I think it's fantastic that people um you know attended in such numbers and I think you know again the sort of point around the private sector being there you know, I mean, we've just been through the pandemic. Everyone knows how stretched government budgets are uh, You know, globally and everyone knows the scale of the climate challenge. So, you know, there's no question, there can be no question that we'll get anywhere close to, you know, keeping warming at 1.5 degrees if all we're doing is, you know, action from governments. It's, you know, it's so obviously incorrect. And so that engagement um, with the private sector, you know, which I think is something that was really majored on by the UK team on this COP um, is, is you know, ultimately very important and and will deliver, or uh, will help to deliver in conjunction with, you know, actions of um, state, uh, states and, you know, people like DFIs who have obviously been uh, called to do more, um, you know, that's what's really going to deliver the change.
0: Yeah, exactly. and And actually a lot of the progress that we're looking for, in terms of um, emissions reductions, is also like being driven substantially by the private sector too. So, completely agree with that, and also what you're saying before that, you know, we're all on the same side here, and we're all working towards a common a common goal together. So, you know, I think we're we're basically getting to this, but it's it's time to address the the elephant in the room. Uh, so there were these huge expectations leading into COP26. A lot of people coming together. There's also been a, a fair amount of of critique around uh, the ultimate results. Um, so the the question is for for you guys um, to to ris- decide this issue definitively. Was it a success? And if so, how?
2: Definitively. Um, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well, I, I think, Rich, to, to contextualize this a little bit first, I think it's, it's really important to set out how challenging a COP agreement can be and actually is. I mean, both the Paris Agreement and even looking at the Glasgow Agreement, they, they really re- they require unanimity from the signatories in order for the text to pass. So yes, you know, while there has been criticism, in particular around the watering down of you know, the phasing out of coal, um, it is a huge step when you put it into that context. This is, you know. It's, you know as Claire said we've just come through a pandemic and a lot of states showed up in person to to make sure that they were actually part of this discussion because this is so important when you look at the the Paris Agreement there was one critical gap around the carbon markets at article six of the Paris Agreement Um, the the new text actually implements this now and so you know this is this has been a a battle and I think the finance industry is particular uh, and investors too have actually been calling for some degree of, of Direction on what a carbon price might look like at a at a, at a governmental level, or at yeah, a UN if can, level.
0: If I can just um, maybe for for listeners, can you uh, briefly explain what Article
2: Six is? Or, sure. Yeah. So Article Six actually um, creates at a state level uh, a carbon market, which ideally sets a, a price for carbon that is then governed by the UN itself, and so this in this case probably the UNFCCC who would be required to do so. But what it does is it allows states to use various forms of, of finance in other jurisdictions and through an arrangement that's been set up, whether trade or non-trade relationships. So that could be by grants as well, by example, um, to actually invest into projects that are posit- have a positive impact on climate change. So that could be investment into solar fields, investment into an energy um, infrastructure, for example. And in turn, you would be given a carbon credit. Uh, or can generate carbon credits that can then be utilized by you as part of your uh, NDC commitments. So you can actually neutralize the carbon footprint by uh, uh, by offsetting through the through the credit that you've created um, using using this investment. So, sorry, yeah, we're and, coming in there, Rich. Yeah, and
0: I mean, for uh, one of the results of this COP twenty six is they developed more more rules around this. So, like one it's, of the rules is like like no double counting for these carbon yeah. credits, or you know, yeah, so the, what it applies to. Carbon.
2: Yeah, so it's it's not that they've necessarily developed new rules. I think the double counting issue was one that was identified down in in Paris as well, and it's been sort of a challenge that that's persisted through to COP twenty six really, um, even in the G twenty discussions and and others. So the double counting issue, I think, is is one that that needs work and it needs to be. Uh, needs to be ironed out. I think this is what we've, what we're seeing now as an implementation that, that we do need a that you know that the UN can go ahead and produce a carbon market. I think the value of the carbon market may be maybe be challenged and questioned in particular as you start looking at voluntary carbon markets which are created um, in separate industries and in, a, in a sort of a local and, and at, a, at a voluntary level as it's termed, uh, but by the private businesses. Um, so you also have companies like Shell, for example, investing in Indonesia into reforestry programs and projects. Um, which generates carbon credits that can then be used to offset their footprint but that's slightly separate and removed from the credits that are being produced at a state level and so what you might end up actually seeing is something like a regulatory uh, in you know a regulation introduced in Indonesia as an example prohibiting the trade of those offsets outside the country because Indonesia would rather use them in the country so these sort of things do need to be, um, understood and ironed out as to how this might work and what the practicalities of it are. But, you know, one of the, th- the reasons I, I look at this positively is because a lot of companies um, and a lot of, of countries now are looking at science-based targets for their commitments. And to achieve these, and th- these are largely focused on, you know, 2030, uh, you know, even Clifford Chance has SPTIs, uh, sorry, has SBT, um, has science-based targets now. Um, now approved and you know we are we are looking at, at these now from a twenty thirty perspective and so there will be many companies as we come closer to that that timeline who actually will benefit from being able to access these these credits and many states too will be looking at that point to try and understand whether um, there is an opportunity for them to use that um, as a as a means to to either garner more investment in the country where there is a need for investment and opportunity to create these credits or to actually utilize credits from other states which are not otherwise being used because their footprints might be smaller um, or they may have gotten further down the track but to Claire's point you know we're we're taking everyone along this 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 COP is intended to be wherever you are starting from let's go together and we can we need to work collectively at this at this challenge this is not one for just the UK this is not one uh, for just the states this this needs this needs collective action so so I mean from that perspective article six uh, being agreed after several years of of not being able to reach agreement is 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 a right move in the right direction. So is things like the Indian commitment for net zero by uh, by 2070, slightly later, but still a big deal. And of course, you know the two big ones that came out very early on in the discussions, which were the the methane reduction by 30 percent, and the deforestation um, uh, pledges to, to cease deforesting by, by 2030. These are these are significant um, these are significant steps for for this COP to take. Um, right. And while I've got the floor, if I can just add one last one before I hand over to, to Claire, because I'm sure she'll she'll also have um, a few thoughts on this question. I think, you know, if you look at the NDCs themselves, these are the nationally determined contributions by the states as to how they're going to make it to net zero. And that's an ambition for 2050. Um, but many of them have got 2030 targets as well. Um, and you match that to sort of the the shell ruling. And you know, for, for the listeners, the shell ruling was uh, in, in the Hague, um The District Court in the Hague ruled that Shell needed to be a little bit more ambitious with their uh, net zero commitments. And they asked for a 45% reduction on emissions by 2030. This has now found its way into the state level negotiations at Glasgow. So what we're actually seeing is that all the NDCs are now being asked to be reviewed at an annual, um, every two years. And they're asking them to make them a lot more um, uh, ambitious for the purposes of achieving a 1.5 degree rise. And what that really means is it's probably going to have a direct knock-on effect on the businesses within those jurisdictions to help these countries reach that point.
0: Right. So some major topics that were covered at this COP26, some real progress made on these, you know, even even things like the pledge to stop deforestation by 2030 um, – there's been kind of criticism around that like oh it's just rehashing uh, previous commitments made but you know again i think it's it's nevertheless important to make these kind of commitments and even that brazil signed on to this so brazil being part of this deforestation pledge um this pledge to stop deforestation does does mean something
1: i Um, think the point about bringing people bringing people in and keeping them going is, is a really strong one and I think maybe people, um, to, to, to David's point earlier about you know cops are hard, um, getting global agreement on things is hard. I mean we, we've sort of seen with Covid a global response has been challenging um, slash hasn't really happened. Um, There's been some collaboration, um, things like COVAX and similar, which is really positive. But actually, you know, if you look at the vaccination rates in different countries, there's a huge disparity in, in, in different countries. And you've seen vaccine nationalism, as it's called, you know, this sort of global framework for global moves is difficult. And it's always going to be Um, to use the phrase, I hate a journey, um, I'll use a pathway, it's more, it's more ESG, isn't it? A pathway, um, uh, sort of in one direction, sort of bringing people in um, as you go, Um, you know, and I think on the NDCs, you know, when people say keep 1.5 alive, there's a reason why it wasn't, you know, let's get to 1.5. I don't think many people expected, you know, NDCs um, at COP26 to meet 1.5 1.5 degrees, or to you know, to, to achieve 1.5 degrees, it was always that we we're going to have further Cops, and the ambition would be raised at each um, each COP. I, I was sort of reading a bit more about the um, the Montreal Protocol, and I, I think that's really interesting. Which I don't know if people are familiar with that, but that was the protocol related to CFCs and the ozone layer, um, which sort of dominated dominated my uh, early life. Um, you know, we sort of had this first. Um, uh the first ozone hole detected in 1985 um and in 1987 you had the montreal protocol you know very quick action in in global terms um uh, you know to do something about that but you know what's 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 interesting well, there's a couple of interesting things um first interesting thing is that um china and india were two of the later countries to sign in um to this and they did so in, I think it was 91 and 92, respectively. Um, and they did so in conjunction with the establishment of a uh, multilateral fund, um, which had been funded to the tune of around $4 billion by, um, by countries that have, that basically the developed countries that have contributed the most um, to ozone depletion, um, d- directing funds at those who have um, contributed the least. You know, Lots of parallels with what we're talking about um, now with COP. And, and carbon. Um, and also that idea that, you know, we we, we move that funding and then we, we bring people in. I think it's the only, um, I think it's still the only treaty that's been ratified by every country in the world. Um, so, you know, and and, and interestingly as well, they're still having meetings, they're still setting targets. Um, you know, we don't really talk about ozone anymore, um, or I don't hear much about it but it's clearly still an issue and still we're trying to set targets to lower those emissions over time. So, you know, it's always a long game um, and there can be setbacks along the road. Um, So I think, you know, what we've we've come out with at this COP in terms of the NDCs is something to be pleased about. It is moving in the right direction and it's kind of acknowledged the fact that we need to not wait another five years to to move better. We need to think about next year.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I think a a couple of things with that. I mean, the first is is kind of this question around enforcement and international agreements that um, in in the absence of clear enforcement mechanisms, this is all that w- this is what we can do, right? That we can keep having these um, meetings of these nations to keep everyone acting and collaborating together. And so I think that's a great point. Also, what you were saying about the parallels to um, COP26—I mean, that's very true. With with China and India, ultimately, kind of playing this role in this this last negotiation around the phase down language of coal, as opposed to to phase out and. Um, but uh, you know, a bright point actually is is also the um, developing countries um, now being on track to meet their financial commitments for. I'm I'm sorry that for wealthy countries being on track to meet their financial commitments um, to support developing nations. And you know, even though it's it's behind schedule, it looks like that's going to be uh, the case in the in the coming years.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, people sort of talk about it as a new commitment. It's obviously a very old commitment, but um, but you know, people are building up towards it, and uh, sort of the new commitments made this time round, um, you know, are very very positive. And you know, I think as well as the commitments, um, you saw particular particular programmes. You know, the Just Energy Transition Partnership with South Africa. Um, uh, you know, you saw other programmes around uh, putting things into action. Um, so, you know, I think the more of those we start seeing in different nations, the better, uh, and hopefully, we'll see a few emerge um, over the coming months.
0: Right. Okay. So, last question for you both: um, What do you think are the is like a major takeaway for for our clients?
1: Well, if you haven't already got a net zero plan. Um, You should start looking at that immediately. Um, And actually, um, I think, think about, um, you know, it's a huge challenge, um, uh, but also a huge opportunity. And, you know, we like to talk about um, risks and opportunities in relation to uh, ESG and, and the climate. So um, you know the strategy around how people will um, change their business, maybe um, focus on um, the things they're doing really well, um, do more of that. Um, you know, I think I think coming up with a with a plan over the next, uh, you know, particularly up to 2030 um, will be key, uh, and engaging with many of the organisations who are there to um, support each other, which is you know, which is really um, very good to see because I think um, you know. Uh, the early movers on this were um, were moving, you know, p- perhaps a bit in the dark with not a lot of data, um, uh, not a lot of information, you know, some criticism on the early movers who sort of put themselves up above the parapet and say we're doing something. You know, I think now there's um, safety in numbers and hopefully support in numbers for the people all trying to uh, take positive action on this.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree entirely with Claire. I, I think you know it's it's fair to say that ESG is here to stay. Um, the the investment that that's going into this now, I think, is 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 one that's needed. It's one that's needed not just from a business perspective, but also from a more more from a a, a climate and a social perspective as well. I think, and to that point, you know, one of the things that also came out in this. In, in the climate discussions this time around, uh, a little bit more prominently than previously, has been around the point of the just transition. And I think Richie sort of mentioned this very early on um, in the conversation. But really trying to see, you know, it's it's quite one thing to talk about climate change as a, as a very broad and easily implemented policy that can be sort of deployed everywhere. But I think, you know, when you actually come down to implementing some of the global policies, there will be challenges. Um, at a local level, around how decisions made at a global policy level actually are impacting people's day-to-day lives, and I think one of the terms I used more frequently this time was "net zero for resilience." And you know that "for resilience" piece takes it a little bit beyond the mathematical zero and brings a little bit more of the human element into it. I think climate is a, a much broader piece um, of a very, very complicated framework, and you know we've, we've also started seeing the role that biodiversity has to play in this. There, are, the conversation is definitely in some ways, um, to borrow from Boris Johnson, it's levelling up um, to, to a point where we're now seeing intersection challenges, intersectional challenges between the E, the S and the G. We're also starting to see within the E itself challenges between you know, climate change and biodiversity and how the two engage and interact. But as Claire said, we've been sort of living in a in a bit of a uh, an abyss without all the data being available to us. But as we start focusing a little bit more now on the science to set these targets uh, and on the science to understand What can and and, sorry and technology to understand what can and cannot be captured and reported on. I think we're gonna find ourselves moving in the right direction.
0: Right. For for me it's it's basically that the writing is on the wall here that for business models that are very heavily reliant on on fossil fuels, this is where the the world is is moving, that it's moving away from fossil fuels and it's moving towards decarbonization. And this is like you guys are like Claire, you're saying this is just a huge opportunity also for for our clients. And of course, we advise on a lot of the transactions that are that are part of this initiative. Um, the cop twenty six, I think really was ultimately very important. And, you know, as a, a lot of these are, I mean, for the like Paris climate conference, this has resulted in a measurable reduction of emissions. and, if we do actually keep to the commitments that have been been made at these conferences, um, whether it's in the public or private sector, this really will will move the needle. Okay, so I think that brings us to the end of our podcast. Uh, thanks very much for for joining, guys.
1: Thank you, Rich.
2: Yeah, thanks, Rich. And you know, thanks, thanks for for organizing this, but also thank you for you know giving us an opportunity to talk about what happened at cop on the ground and you know i'm hoping that as a result of this this conversation we also start hearing back from some of the listeners um, about you know how we can we can we can help them alongside ourselves move this dial and you know to use claire's term not a journey but a pathway uh in the right direction there i
0: like it okay so on that note please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com um Follow Clifford Chance on LinkedIn, and you can email any questions or feedback to richard.kim at cliffordchance.com.